Welcome to the History of the Batman with London, brought to you by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles in Hollywood, California. This is where we relive the defining moments of one of the most iconic figures in comic art and literature, the Batman. My name is Adam Silverstein, and as always, I am joined by London, and from the shadows, we have Shadow Adam. This week on the History of the Batman, we are going to have a retrospect on creators of Batman within the last 75 years at DC Comics. But before we get there, I would like to introduce or say hello to you, London. I mean, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. How are you? Good, good. That was a great episode last week we had on Bane. My favorite. Your favorite. <laughs> and when we left and, you know, stopped the show, ended the show, we did not ask whether our producer, engineer, Mason, had been converted to a Bane fan. Mason? Uh, no. <laughs> Still not a fan? I mean, do you... Do you... I, I will say I'm, I'm intrigued that he got with Talia. I think that is astounding to me because, you know, she is my favorite... Uh, Batman love interest. Okay. And, and if we can get a if we can get a show about Batman's many love interests, Ooh. I, I would be a fan. I of would that. love to do that. So there is a request, Batman's love interests. That's yeah, a good he's one. Gotta have. I, who knows how many? Like, I don't even <laughs> know. But Talia is amazing, and if she's willing to get with Bane, all right, I'll give it. Bane. She's willing to get with you, is what you're saying. <laughs> Bane? No, you. If Talia would get with Bane, she'd get with you. I guess so. Okay. He must have something. She just fulfills she, a fantasy. She's not. She's not willing to just go with anybody. So right. I'll give it that. But so is that, so. Can we at least say this that you learned something last week? Oh, absolutely. I, I learn stuff every every week. Okay. Awesome. So, <laughs> and I will say this, like. I admit, in the first instance of Bane, when he first came out, yes, he was amazing, and he beat Batman, and that was great. But after that, and I didn't, I don't think you really addressed this, after that, he, he's just so easily defeated ever since. Right. Ever it's, since, they, it's like a throwaway. It's definitely not as intense as Nightfall, no. So, but with the other stories that Bane has, I think you just get a little bit more insight into who he is. You know, it may not be the backbreaking guy but you still get to learn a little bit more of how he's involved in the dc universe and batman's mythos <laughs> all right well so london tell me a little bit about what the uh genesis of this week's episode is well it's based off of actually the feedback that a lot of times i get on instagram.com slash history of the batman where people will comment and say, you know, I really want to get into Batman comics. I've never read Batman comics before, but either from the post or just in general, they want to start reading about his stories. And I usually give, you know, a list. I usually direct them to this um, great list that DCComics.com has. It's called Batman 101, and it goes down a few you know, along like a list of just Batman stories that are essential to his history. And I thought I would kind of do that in a different way where we'll go decade by decade and we'll highlight two creators, whether they're writers or artists or both, and discuss what they have done um, and how they've contributed to Batman and why their work is so significant that they should be almost the representations of that era and that decade itself. Now, I don't want you to spoil anything right now, but do you have a favorite creator? I do. Without I, telling me? No, <laughs> because I won't. I do. I, um, I have about maybe three different artists that I really enjoy. Um, it's hard to decide which one I like the most, but, uh, Brian Boland, he's not on our list because I didn't want to be biased, but Brian Boland is one of my favorite, um, artists and I really like Kelly Jones. Uh, he is more, uh, Batman horror genre. He, you know, and I really, I'm a huge horror comics 
freak. You know, I really love all the, you know, like the EC comics and like Tales from the Crypt and all of those kind of, you know, stories. And I think he really brings that into Batman. Um, and my favorite writer, I would probably say, is Grant Morrison. Oh, you just you spoiled yeah, it. I know. And he actually is on our list. And it's not because I like him, but I, he actually did a – he's very profound in the Batman uh, story. So we'll talk about that. So now <laughs> when you're talking about creators that we're going to talk about in the each – I guess each decade, uh, are we talking about artists and writers? Are we talking about – them separately or the creation that they came with together? Um, it's a little bit of all of that. I mean, some are just separate. Some are just, they're two different writers and some are two different artists. But then in certain decades, they're kind of a combo pack. Like, especially when we look in the 70s, those two creators definitely work together to bring something new um, to Batman that I think is really significant. So you'll just be talking about two creators that you find to be uh, impactful in the Batman uh, comic book world. Definitely. And I'm sure there are people listening that when I say the two, they'll say, oh, you didn't talk about this person or this person. There are dozens of people in each decade that you can pretty much talk about, but I picked two that I think are significant. Okay. And <laughs> so where do we start? Do we start at 1939? Yep. We will just start with that year since it's the year that Batman was debuted. And I have Bob Kane and Bill Finger as my two um, creators for this year. Um, just to give a little background, um, Bob Kane, before he started Batman, you know, he was a comic strips creator. He did westerns and pulp fiction comics and and West and um, just different, you know, kind of stuff that was in Detective Comics that kind of like, you know, dark tales and things. And once Superman was created in 1938, the DC editor at the time, which was National Publications, um, Vin Sullivan, he went to Bob Kane, um, and who was the artist, and he wanted him to create a hero that would stand kind of alongside Superman and. He went, um, he had a lot of inspirations from uh, the Mask of Zorro and kind of like that kind of dark vigilante hero to designs such as Leonardo da Vinci's flying machine. And he created this character who was almost like in style, a carbon copy look of Superman. You know, he kind of had the red costume in his first drawings. He had a domino mask and he kind of had blondish hair and he's kind of swinging from a rope and he calls him the bat hyphen man. Um, and so from that point, he created the Batman, that character. He signed a contract with National Publications for the rights to Batman and however Batman proceeded, he would get all of the artistic uh, creative credit for any comic he would be in in the future. Um, and then uh, once they saw the design, Sullivan asked ghostwriter Bill Finger to come in and he gave um, some changes to, to the design to Bob Kane and that included a different color scheme. He had the blue and gray costume, um, the kind of wing-like uh, cape was changed to kind of a flowing uh, cape and he had a cowl and not just a domino mask and he wore these gloves and the reason more for the gloves is because Bill Finger while Bob Kane had him as a more vigilante a dark you know Avenger Bill Finger wanted him to be more of a detective he wanted to be more like Sherlock Holmes and so he said the gloves were important to him because he wouldn't leave any fingerprints when he was on the crime scenes and so with Bob Kane's vigilante and Bill Finger's detective mushed together pretty much Batman and he debuted in Detective Comics Volume 1, Number 27 with a cover date of May 1939. Um, so pretty much they both worked together on most of the first year of Batman comics. Um, and of course, the first one, I guess the first comic we would talk about is his debut because Bob Kane did the pencils and the inks and the cover and Bill Finger was the writer and it's the case of the chemical syndicate which over the past 75 plus years has been redone and given an homage and you know written again by many different writers and 
in a nutshell, you are introduced to Commissioner Borden. You're introduced to, at the time, millionaire, since it was 1939, millionaire Bruce Wayne. And pretty much Bruce Wayne has to transform into the Batman to solve several murders that um, this businessman Stryker is committing to try to take all of the other businesses for himself. And in the end, Batman has to solve the case and find him and bring him to justice. And then at the end of the issue, you discover that Bruce, May Bruce Wayne and Batman are one and the same. Commissioner Gordon has no idea that he's Batman or anything. He just thinks that he is a weird socialite and, you know, thinks that his life is dull and boring, which is definitely a theme that goes along with early comics, especially with Bruce Wayne having a fiancé and thinking that, you know, he's boring and he doesn't have a life outside of just being a playboy. And that really shows in a lot of different stories. So that one, the combo of Bob Kane and Bill Finger, brought a beautiful start to an incredible history that Batman has. And for Bob Kane, he did um, Pencils and Ink to one of the first stories that had Batman facing a supervillain um, of sorts, and it's called Dr. Death, and that was in Detective Comics 28 and 29. And pretty much Dr. Death is uh, pretty much like a mad scientist, and he is trying to kill several different Gothamites and people in Gotham, and Batman has to go head-to-head -head with his henchmen, and then he finds Dr. Death, and in the first part it goes the whole laboratory goes up in huge flames and fire and it's visually stunning I mean considering um you don't really see that kind of intensity even in the first you know issue the fact that he's facing someone who has these kind of weird potions and kind of it's a he's more than just a crook he is someone who is very harmful to Batman and in the last part of the issue you know he's considered dead because he burned in the fire but then in issue 29 in part two where Bob Kane so does the pencils and the inks and the cover he discovers that Dr. Death has been you know disguised as another man and he tracks him down and you know unmasks him and then he puts him in prison and that story, I mean, you really see Bob Kane, you know, kind of, even though people, you know, like, oh, he didn't invent Batman because Bill Finger changed the design. I mean, Bob Kane still was a very important illustrator, and he really did showcase Batman as this pulp vigilante figure that he originally saw in Zorro when he was first creating that and so Bill Finger of course is definitely important not just in 1939 but he continues to write stories in the 40s and the 50s in the golden age and silver age of comics um, but definitely the debut of Batman and the first kind of arc part part one and two of Batman and Dr. Death are definitely issues I think people who want to start getting into comics should read especially since they're the first ones and you can really see batman in his original form right and i mean even introducing commissioner gordon in that first that, ep, uh, that first issue i mean that's huge i mean he goes on to play such a major role right and he and he begins to play a major role in the late 40s i mean it doesn't even take it takes less than a decade for commissioner gordon to be an important part of Batman's almost family, you know, he helps and aids Batman. You know, at first he's kind of put off and thinks he's just this crazy guy dressed up in a suit running around and taking away the jobs from the police. But then he sees that he's really trying to do good and he's on his side. And, you know, he kind of convinces the rest of the police force that he's someone that helps us, not necessarily hinders what we do. So it's really interesting that he's in the very first comic, even though he has a kind of small role. I didn't even realize that he, he had that small of a role and then yeah. it ultimately grew. Right. Was there any other characters that, that had that, that uh, Kane and Finger created? Um, I mean, there's dozens. I mean, I guess originally the Joker's one that they created along with Jerry Robinson, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then they created Catwoman. And they created a pretty much 
a lot of the early characters. I mean, like the Penguin, like those three, the Joker, Catwoman, Penguin, and then Two-Face later, they're all created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and depending on which one, maybe another creator. But they created the main Batman family, and including Dick Grayson, who's Robin. Um, so the first early people or, you know, reoccurring characters that existed in 1939, the early 40s, those two definitely had um, an importance in bringing them to life. And so that's why I think they're really significant, because they pretty much started Batman. Now, I do have one question for you. Okay. <laughs> Batman versus the Batman. <laughs> what is that? I, I don't. I mean, I, I keep on saying history of the Batman, but I also see Batman. Why is it the versus no the? I think. I mean, and that's why when I first started the Instagram page, I called it history of the Batman because when he started, they called him the and then Bat hyphen Man, and that lasted for probably the first five issues, and then he just went to being Batman. So I'm not sure exactly why that changed, but when he was first created, that's what they called him. And that's why I like to keep it as the Batman because that's how he started. And, you know. I like that. <laughs> Pays homage to, you know, the beginning. Exactly. Thank you for explaining that because I've, <laughs> I've, I've kind of been not – I did, just didn't ever think to answer, ask the question until right now. We're talking about the creators. And so the – I think that uh, – I personally like the Batman. I like it too. No, it sounds official. It sounds it sounds intimidating. Right. I mean, Batman is one thing, but the Batman. Right. Even in the first issue of Jack Thomas 27, you know, when the when they're on top of the roof and there are these two crooks, they see him for the first time, they're like, watch out, it's the Batman. I mean, every time someone sees him, they say, it's the Batman. You know, it's not necessarily just Batman. So I always found that that's like, you know, it's the, it's the Batman. It's the one guy. Right. It's, yeah. So I also I wonder it's, if it's just because maybe that was the first time he's on the scene, you know? Right. And, and then eventually he's always on the scene and so he's then always, they call and him then just, he, we're familiar with you now. You're right. not just the Batman. Exactly. You're Batman. <laughs> so, 1939, we talk about Bill Finger and Bob Kane. Right. Obviously, as you said, huge contributors, the main contributors, and still standing the test of time. Uh, let's move into the 40s. What other... I mean, unless you've got something else to add to no, Kane and Finger. I mean, I think that pretty much covers it. They were, you know, they're pretty much pioneers of Batman and his rogues gallery and just how he began. So that's why I picked those two for the first yeah. year. It may also be a, a nice uh, show to do just profiles on the creators themselves. Oh, not, definitely. Not the – because in this, this episode, we're really focusing on the creators and what things they contributed. Exactly. Versus just a profile on the contributors and, right. or the creators. And I think that would be fascinating yeah, because, definitely. I mean, Bob Kane – and Bill Finger, these, and, you know, Robinson as well, these, you know, gentlemen almost deserve an entire podcast on just oh, them. Yes, definitely. That's definitely a full episode that they can definitely contribute to. So, yeah, that would be something we could talk about in the future for All sure. Right. <laughs> so let's move on to the 40s. And okay. you had picked Dick Sprang and Jerry Robinson? Yes, I picked those two. And why did you pick them? I picked them because they both – really contributed to a lot of not only first, you know, appearances of characters, but just the art and the writing and the stories themselves that kind of really started to build what the what Batman represented, you know, what was in, you know, w what kind of gadgets, what type of villains, you know, kind of his almost look in the 1940s were based off of these two artists. Um, I, I am a fan of Dick Spring. I really like golden age of comics, like the forties and the early fifties. Um, and I like Dick Spring as an artist. Um, he, and pretty much for most of these creators that we'll talk about, most of them started, you know, they started from 
they're in New York City, and then they started, you know, on comic strips and small Western comics, and then they were called upon DC to, you know, write or ink for them and create new characters. And that's the same with Dick Sprang. Um, he started in pulp magazines and, you know, different comic strips. And then in 1941, he was hired by Vin Sullivan, who was the DC editor, to um, kind of it's interesting because it kind of takes an out-of-comic-book context. Uh, during this time, in 1941, the DC editors weren't sure if Bob Kane, who was the main artist, was going to be drafted into World War II. And so since there was a huge possibility he wouldn't be able to do the comics, they hired Dick Sprain to kind of almost take his place just in case they wouldn't be able to get that art or those comics out because he would be drafted. Um, but since then, Dick, Stra Dick Spring kind of just stuck around. And his first uh, interior work was in Batman number 19 from October, November 1943. And I mean, it's not really a spectacular story or anything. It's a Batman versus Joker type of, you know, crazy rendezvous. But just the fact that he started um, he first drew his Joker, which his Joker is very significant, the way his jawline, his jawline is and his smile and just the kind of way that he looks. It's a very distinctive style in the same way as Batman. He kind of has the square jaw, the kind of squished Batman emblem on his chest, you know, and... He, to be, you know, it's interesting enough, he kind of smiles more than he did in the last year, 1939, because, of course, when he was by himself, his almost literal year one in 1939, he was by himself. He didn't have Dick Grayson yet until Detective Comics 38 from, from April of 1940. So he had a whole year of being this dark pulp fiction character that used a gun and killed and was just on his own and was just kind of being kind of like the lone ranger. But now that Robin is there, they kind of get to play around a little bit, and he is more lighthearted, but you see him, I mean, when you see Dick Sprain's Batman, you know, okay, that's Dick Sprain's work, that's Dick Sprain's style. Um, and then another issue that's really interesting, especially people who are fans of the Batmobile, um, in Batman Volume 1, number 20 from 1943, I think it's December 1943, might be January 1944, depending on the printing, Dick Sprain created the cover, and it's the first time the Batmobile is on the cover ever. And it's still Jerry Robinson, who we'll talk about next, it's still his original design. It's kind of a black car with a red uh, racing stripe on the side. It has a bat emblem like um, grill and a huge back fin. And it's very dramatic. I mean, it has like a huge pretty much bat symbol on every piece of the car. But the cover itself is very exciting because the Batmobile bursts through the covers and you see Batman and Robin inside the car and you see almost bullet holes within the window, which means some crook just shot up the car. And even before you turn the pages, you see this exciting moment where Batman and Robin are in action and they're in the Batmobile, which before it was like a convertible or, you know, just a regular kind of sports car that Bruce Wayne drove. But now it's an actual, it's a literal Batmobile. So Dick Sprain did a lot of covers that, you know, really illustrated rogues like the Penguin and the Joker and Batman and Robin and just kind of gave an almost fun, exciting style um, for readers to see before they open up the pages and see what the comic is about. So I think Dick Sprain as a whole, especially in the 1940s, he had a really big part of kind of giving a distinguished look to the golden age of Batman and how he looked. Wow, he did he did quite a bit then. <laughs> you were telling me that um, he wasn't credited originally on the cover because of... Uh, because of the contract? Because of Bob Kane's contract, definitely. And that just doesn't go for Dick Spring. That goes with Jerry Robinson, Sheldon Moldoff, Charles Paris, George Rousseau. I mean, all of the artists and write well, not writers, mostly. I mean, Bill Finger was so credited, but in terms of art, since Bob Kane was at many times, he was the, the cover artist and the pencil and inks. Due to his contract, that's why no one was really credited. It just said Bob Kane. Even though, you know... I'm talking about Dick Sprain, and there are tons and tons of comics he's inked and he's done covers to, you would never know. And you don't really discover that until, I think, 1964. So there's about 
two decades worth of artists who are uncredited for their work because Bob Kane pretty much signed an exclusive contract that says any type of art formed by the character I created, I get all the credit. So that's why a lot of people today, and especially the artists' families, you know, kind of have an upheave against um, Bob Kane because all of the work that they've done for so long was uncredited. Even though today it's a different story, you know, everyone's credited. But at the time, it was just different back what then. What happened in 64? Well, 64, they pretty much the... The contract was pretty much canceled, and it was uh, an updated one was written because it was from 1939, 1964, and that's when you pretty um, they pretty much put out all of the people who contributed to the art, and that's when you found out, you know, Dick Sprang did it, and Jerry Robinson, and you know, different writers like Don Cameron, and just all of these people who were so influential in the Golden Age and the Silver Age that didn't get their, you know their names on the things they created. So there's a lot of drama. That's why I said, like you said, I can go on a whole episode just talking about Bob Kane and Bill Finger and just the background that they have done and what kind of things happen within national publications, DC Comics. Right. I mean, sure. I, I think it would be fascinating to kind of go over the legal issues, the ownership issues right, of definitely. all the creators because, you know, nowadays, and rightfully so, you should be credited. Right, exactly. And uh, I'm always a big believer in, you know, respecting the artist, respecting the creator, and making sure that they're included in the success of whatever they're doing. Right. And people should know, and that's now a thing. But, you know, I think uh, paying respect to the creators and the originators and the... Um, you know, early pioneers is, is a worthwhile show. Definitely. That's so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so tell, tell me about Jerry Robinson then. Um, Jerry Robinson, he did tons of um, comics and covers and, you know, interior work. But for Jerry Robinson, he's most known for contributing to, of course, the Joker is the first one, even though he helped create Robin. And even if it's in the slightest way, when Bob Kane and Bill Finger were trying to figure out a sidekick for Batman, Jerry Robinson was the person who suggested that they should name him Robin after the hero Robin Hood. So even little things like that are very important. Um, and he's also credited to creating the Joker. Um, he saw Conright Veidt's performance in The Man Who Laughs and liked his aesthetics and the way that he looked and thought that it would be great to use this type of grotesque figure to be a kind of villain and he wanted him to be like the, the arch nemesis to Batman so for that um, and the Joker premiered in a Batman number one from spring of 1940 and the Joker just celebrated that 75th anniversary um, this past uh, April April 25th it's marked 75 years and you know, we've talked about this story before in uh, in other episodes, but, you know, the Joker just become, is a mass murderer and he's killing everyone, announcing it through radio, radio waves and saying that I'm going to kill this person at this time and Batman and Robin pretty much have to stop from all of the killings that Joker has done, even though he's successfully killed about four people. And so that already established him as this, you know, mad murderer with a smile on his face. Um, and he's done, I mean, tons, especially in the 40s and the 50s, and he is an important character, is an important, it's an important creator for actually Alfred, who was first named Alfred Beagle, and he looks completely different than the Alfred we know already. I mean, he was kind of, kind of a short, stubby man with, you know, a balding head, and he was still their butler, um, but he created or helped with the creation of that and then once the serials came out in 1943 they changed Alfred Beagle to look like the Alfred Pennyworth we know today the tall slender you know black tie you know slick back hair butler so Jerry Robinson's important because he's done he's contributed tons of comic book covers and inks and even characters from Robin to Joker to uh, Alfred to even Two Face, um, he's helped with in the creation of those characters, and those are reoccurring figures that are still in today. And 
I mean, I think anyone can probably argue that he's an important creator, not just in the 40s, but he's been in the 50s and the 60s. Um, he pretty much ended in the early 60s with his run, but he's pretty much cr um, created tons of characters that are important to Batman's history. What are some other, uh, can you give me a few other characters or creations that Robinson uh, came up with? Um, pretty much it's been, like I said, he helped with uh, Dick Grayson and the character, and the actual Alfred character Robin, yeah. But anyone else that we're missing? Any... Um, I mean, I'm sure there are tons. I mean, I don't believe that he helped create Catwoman, who was in the same debut issue as Joker. But though the big, I think the big four, at least in the early years, are, Rob, um, are Robin, Joker, Two-Face, or Harvey Kent, and then he went to Harvey Dent. And then uh, Alfred, um, he helped with those. And those are all, I think, really important characters. So, yeah, I think for the 40s, those two creators, I think they really stood out. Of course, there are tons of other creators like Jack Burnley and, and George Rousseau um, that helped in the 40s. But I think those two really stand out and are even celebrated today for their work in this time period. Wow. All right, so next we'd be moving on to the 50s, but before we do, I'd like to give a shout-out to our sponsor, ComicsFix.com. That's F-I-X, Comics Fix. It's unlimited comic books on a digital platform. So you can actually read these comics if you pay $8.99 a month. You can actually try for free to start off with, and then you can just read as many comics as your heart's desire, good service it's like the netflix of digital comics you can get it on your computer on your tablet on your phone so uh, check out comicsfix.com to get started all right so now back to the subject at hand or are we done with jerry robinson yep i think we covered jerry robinson i'm ready to go to the 1950s <laughs> all right do 50s and you so for the 50s you pick charles paris and sheldon moldoff yes not two of the they're not as known as right. the first four, as but the first but four. they obviously have contributed to the Batman canon. Definitely. And those two artists are definitely ones that were uncredited within their original, you know, productions of comics and, you know, Bob Kane pretty much was the person that did all the art. So I think that's a big reason why, you know, they may not be as well known. And even though they're not as, you know, known as Jerry Robinson or Dick Sprang or Bill Finger, they are very important into Batman's um, progression and even into building Batman's family, um, the Batman family. Um, so first is Charles Paris. I mean, he's from New York, and he even worked on another hero, the Crimson Avenger, in Detective Comics. Um, he did that until 1941. And then he, along with Bob Kane, they both inked and penciled on uh, Batman comic strips because... Batman wasn't just in comic books, but he was also in, like, New York on uh, newspaper comic strips. Um, and that was for about three years until 1946. And then Charles Paris was, you know, working on Batman comics. And then he created, you know, kind of Silver Age characters that kind of went away um, after the reboot. But he was the person that created uh, Batmite and he was created in uh, Detective Comics 267, and that was in late uh, 1950s, 1959. And I'm sure you guys have seen Batmite on cartoons such as Batman the Brave and the Bold and in comics, but he's pretty much this magical imp, I guess, from the fifth dimension that has all of these powers and is obsessed with Batman and the hero that he is. And pretty much any time he appears in comics, Batman gets annoyed with him and he just goes away. He's kind of like a very gimmicky, very fun-loving character. Definitely something or a character that represents what the 1950s were. The Silver Age era was very lighthearted. It was bright. It was fun. And especially with the Comic Code's authority in place in 1954, comics can be as dark. Characters couldn't be as, you know, the villains that they really were created to be. And so Batmite was a very, you know, is a kind of a standard, you know, character that you would see in Silver Age comics. And um, he also did, you know, just other issues, you know, early ones like 
Batman, you know, number 40. And um, just he worked along with Sheldon Moldoff and he worked along with Bill Finger, the writer. And they pretty much, you know, they did art that was either covers or, you know, panels that pretty much represented that kind of fascination with, you know, science fiction and just kind of represented at that time, you know, the Silver Age. And I like Charles Paris's work, and he's kind of like one of the unsung heroes, the kind of the hidden in the shadows. You know, you don't really know about him until unless you really look into it. But he was just as influential as Dick Sprang and Jerry Robinson in terms of, you know, adding people to the Batman family. I think this Batmite character is, I mean... <laughs> I remember, I mean, that's, I have a vivid memory of him from the cartoons, from yes. the early cartoons. Yes. It was Definitely. the New Adventures of Batman. Yes, the New Adventures of Batman. He was with Batgirl and Batman and Robin, and he was just, yeah, a very silly character, you know, poof in and out, and, you know, would use his powers to help, but he was pretty much just an annoyance, Did you really. watch the Flintstones? Yes. I, I remember <laughs> being like the little kazoo, the little... Yeah. You the call little, them dum-dum. Yeah. <laughs> but... He's, yeah, pretty much just like that. I mean, and that's still in the same kind of era, too. Yeah, that yeah. Batmite, though. I mean, ha has Batmite ever taken a serious role? Or has um, it always kind of been that? I mean, there have been later, like, comics, especially, like, in the 90s and 2000s, where he, you know, he's dealt, he's done, like, issues where he has to fight to, like, keep his race kind of alive, and he asked Batman to help, and then some of his you know, people from his universe die. And there have been certain stories where it's gotten a little darker than just hanging around with Batman and idolizing him. But for the most part, that's why he was created. And it kind of, you know, goes the same with um, when we talk about Sheldon Moldoff. Um, he was an artist. He was a penciler and an inker and sometimes did, sometimes did covers. And, you know, he was active in the 1940s. Um, he worked for different publications. He created a character called Black Pirate in 1940. And he was a ghost artist in the same, like I said before, he was uncredited by Bob Kane. Um, but he is important, not just to Batman, but he was the first to draw um, the DC characters Hawkman and Hawkgirl. And um, he also just created many other Batman rogues and characters, one Calendar Man, which I think is one of my favorites. And now they made them all kind of dark, especially after uh, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale's uh, Long Halloween from 97. You know, he's just he's just all dark and mean. But before, like, he had a nice costume and had the calendar, like, pages all over him. And his, he would fight with, you know, calendar pages and would just, you know, it's a he's a very fun character. I mean, like, he would commit crimes on holidays. And it just... He's a very fun character, you know, created in the 50s, still kind of, you know, the same lightheartedness. But Sheldon Moldoff also created um, Ace the Bat-Hound, who debuted in a Batman 92 from 1955. And, of course, it's like, you know, Batman having a dog. I mean, it's, he's like his best friend, you know, no, you know, not to be funny, but... He was, you know, they found him. He's a German shepherd. And then he, the dog helps them, you know, solve the crime. And because his owner is being taken hostage. And so once they find the owner, he says, you know, if any time you need help from the Bat Hound, you can call. And then in later issues, he pretty much becomes part of the Batman family. He's always in the Batcave. He'll go on, you know, missions sometimes. And like I said, it's just very fun, does, you know. Does he wear a cute Batman costume? He does. He has like a cape and he has a little domino mask that's like batman it has the and batman symbol did he have bat shaped dog treats probably batarang <laughs> batarang <laughs> batarang dog treats i mean it's just all very they, i wonder if they played yeah. fetch with batarang <laughs> <laughs> but like i said it's kind of the same thing as batmite you know it's even though he's in he's in addition to the batman history and all that He's part of the Batman family. I mean, every family likes to have a pet. He's pretty much Batman's pet, you I, know? I wonder if this was a DC thing. I mean, because didn't Superman... Crypto. You're right. Superman had the Superman family, right? right. Shadow Adam. I mean, that's yeah. your favorite yeah, Superman. Yeah, he had his own family, too. So, I mean, what was this just a... I wonder if this was DC just reaching out and saying, let's see how much 
Superman or Batman stuff we can fit on whatever it might be. And pretty much they, you know, like the idea of Crypto the Superdog, so they wanted to have something similar, but, you know, to Batman's face. Because, you know, Crypto, he could fly and all that stuff that Superman can, but now you needed someone who would help him in the lab, in the Batcave, and, you know, you know, chase down the villain and then they catch him. I mean, they, you know, he's like, you know, the best friend. He's the dog of the family. He's the pet of the family. Um, and Sheldon Moldoff also created Mr. Freeze, who debuted actually as Mr. Zero in Batman 121 from February of 1959. And, you know, the story, it's very simple. You know, he has like this ice ray gun and he's trying to freeze Gotham and everything but you really don't see him anymore for like probably a few years I mean he was kind of like a he came and then he kind of left was he kind of a campy type character very much so he was a very gimmicky character and that actually didn't even change until oddly enough Batman the Animated Series in 1992 in the episode Heart of Ice where they totally reinvented Mr. Freeze and made him a more sympathetic character and kind of more darker character, you know. He's he's lost and he loves, you know, his wife Nora who's in a cryogenic state and he's trying to find the cure. And ever since then, that origin has been used in the movies and future um comics but yeah in the 50s and when he was rarely seen in the 60s definitely when he changed from mr zero to mr freeze very campy and that pretty much is the same for most of batman's villains yeah in the beginning at least right we're talking about the 50s. right in the 50s that's definitely I mean, if, if you got the guy creating bat dog <laughs> I mean, Mr. Freeze is going to be pretty goofy probably too. Right, definitely. But it is, I think another cool thing is that how they can, you know, the modern storytellers have reinterpreted some of these characters. I mean, theoretically, a bat dog, you know, could have a role. I mean, he doesn't have to wear a cape or a, a thing, but people do love dogs, like you said. And right. there could be a story where the dog is protecting the owner. He's just not necessarily going to... Or maybe they train the dog to right. sniff for drugs. I don't <laughs> exactly. know. Exactly. But, I mean, there's always a way to retell the story. And yeah, it's- and especially having, you know, like the bad hound, like a dog within the story, is definitely an appeal to audiences because they're like, hey, I have a dog. Or, hey, I have a cat. <laughs> I mean, it's it's all very light and fun. and But it fits perfectly within the 50s era. So even though those two are kind of lesser known artists, I suppose, they're both were very influential into introducing new Batman characters. And and when you really think about it, I mean, so many people, or at least from my generation, still think of that as the primary Batman. Right. And so when you kind of make a joke or when people make a joke like, oh, they created the, you know, the Bat Dog or what whatever we just said, Batmite. You know, I remember that. That's right. that really influenced me and so I can kind of snicker at it now, but I cannot deny the impact. Right. I mean, you remember it. Even though, like I said, even if you haven't seen them in comics, you, you've seen the shows, whether they're from like the late 60s or the early 70s, or they're from um, the 90s, or even the, especially the, 2000, the late 2000s series, Batman the Brave and the Bold, which they, it's pretty much paying an homage to the silver age of comics anyway. I mean, they the Joker in there looks like Dick Sprang's Joker, and, you know, all of these Silver Age characters, Batmite appears in a few episodes and is definitely the same type of character he was in the comics. I mean, he's an annoyance to Batman. He puts him in these weird situations because he's like, oh, I'm putting you in this dangerous situation, but I know you'll be able to get out of it because you're Batman. You're the best hero. It's I a mean, great series for kids. Yeah, definitely. The Brave and the Bold, that is a great series. Um, and speaking of which, that kind of leads us into the 1960s and the two um, creators that I've picked. Um, the first is Gardner Fox, who is definitely one of, I guess, one of the biggest pioneers of probably DC Comics as a whole. I mean, it's been said that he's written almost over 4,000 comics and just stories. Um, But before he became a comic book writer, I mean, he practiced law. And then once the Great Depression hit, he started writing for DC Comics um, because he could get work there. 
Um, and then he was even influential in decades before. In the in 1939, he was the person who created the design for the Batarang. And mm. he was the person who created the design for Dr. Death, which we talked about in uh, Bob Kane's stories from Detective, Detective Comics 28 and 29. I mean, he's been impacting comics even in the early eras before, but I think his work in the 1960s was really important to Batman because he is the person who created the Justice League of America. And they debuted in The Brave and the Bold number 28 from February of 1960. And that introduced, you know, the main people of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, Aquaman, and The Flash. And even though Superman and Batman in that first story where they have to fight Starro, who's this kind of large starfish-shaped alien that's taking over the world, Superman and Batman, they were kind of considered the leaders, but they literally were too busy to fight Starro with them. Superman was in space beating up asteroids and trying to save them from hitting Earth, whereas Batman was busy driving around Gotham City saving crooks. So it was really the other members that fought Starro and saved the day. And that series became so popular that um, in the fall, like October, November of the same year, they got their own series, Justice League of America Volume 1. So, of course, we know that Justice League is so important, even still today. Oh, yeah. So, the fact that he created this team, you know, that puts the greatest DC heroes at the time together makes them the most one of the most powerful teams in comic book history. So, he created the table, the meeting table? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> that's iconic in its own way. Right. I mean, pretty much any I mean, he had a say in all of the kind of iconography that the Justice League kind of has, especially the early ones in the 1960s. So, he wrote that in and he also wrote in a lot of returns to characters that weren't there before like in uh Batman 189 from 1967 he wrote back The Scarecrow because The Scarecrow premiered in the early 40s. But then once that happened, you didn't see him in another issue. It's kind of like he he was almost like almost a non-reoccurring character. I mean, nowadays you think, oh, The Scarecrow is one of Batman's best rogues. He's fun. You know, he has the fear gas and he's, you know, and he really warps Batman's mind. But at the time, Scarecrow was just, you know, a professor, Jonathan Crane, who kind of went a little nuts, put on a scarecrow suit, and started, you know, attacking people. But he only was in that one issue. But then Gardner Fox Connie wrote him back in the late 60s, and he became a more prominent figure. Um, but definitely, uh, I guess, like we said, looking into the dynamics of the DC comic publication and how the inner workings, Gardner start, stopped working for DC in the, late, in the late 60s, like 68, because they weren't giving him health benefits and all of this other kind of legal, you know, things with him working there. So he stopped working for DC and kind of, you know, was out of the comic business for a while. But the fact that he created Justice League and, you know, wrote stories, especially like in the early 40s, you know, he's a really important writer to, to the comics. And the same goes for the next artist. That's for the 1960s is a uh, Carmen Infantino. Before we get to him, okay. um, you mentioned Starro. Did you ever read Captain Carrot and His Amazing Zoo Crew? No. Oh, it was one of my favorite DC <laughs> comics of all time, and one of the issues that they uh, had was a crossover with an animal DC universe. Oh, so wow. there was the Bat Mouse. <gasps> And um, it was one of my favorite things of all time. But that sounds awesome. They fought Starro, they... <laughs> and so that's how I learned about Starro was okay. through Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew and his team up with the Justice League of Animals. I think it was. <laughs> I'm gonna have to read that. Oh now. <laughs> yeah, it, I haven't seen it collected, um, but it is definitely one of my favorites. Wow, that yeah. sounds awesome. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I think Roy Thomas and uh, Scott Shaw created. Okay. I know Scott Shaw was a part of that. I think Roy Thomas as well. But okay. Awesome. Just fantastic stuff. So nice. <laughs> you know, I, animals and character. I just thought it was so great. I mean, I created all these. You know, they had Peter Porker, this amazing Spider Ham, and so nice. I was a kid. I created <laughs> Deer Devil and um, Track Panther instead of Black Panther. He ran track and I had this whole thing. Anyways. 
But there was all a lot of that was influenced by this bat mouse. So great, great, great stuff. Anyway, sorry. So Carm Carmen. Carmine Infantino. Okay. Yes. He he is one of my favorite artists, too, just in, in general in this time period. He first actually worked for Timely Comics, which is now known as Marvel Comics. Um, he did um, pencils and inks for them for a while. And then he came to D.C. And during the Golden Age, you know, during the 40s and the early 50s, he worked on um, Green Lantern and the JLA. But then what he was most, I think, even now, he's more known for, besides Batman, is The Flash. And he pretty much, with his how he drew, you know, with his kind of, vivid lines he kind of created that red and yellow blur you may see when flash runs across a panel and it kind of brought it to life and he went from he was the one that kind of started taking the kind of very light-hearted campy silly stories that batman and flash and wonder woman and superman were having and when he worked on flash he kind of brought that kind of science fiction you know mystery story into flash and kind of made it a little bit more of a deeper story and he kind of initiated you know a new era of the silver age you know the era that was kind of not as light you know and i think his just how he draws was very significant and it introduced different characters in a new way um you know the way he had a vertical horizontal lines and just the way that he drew his pen just moved amazingly different than any other artist that had been seen doing dc before um but i guess two of the most important things that uh infantino brought to the batman mythos was first batman's new look now before you would see batman and still in the gray and blue type of suit, but he had a black kind of squished bat emblem on his chest. But in Detective Comics 327 from May of 1964, this new look, quote-unquote new look, came, and pretty much that introduced the yellow oval symbol that we all kind of know on Batman's chest. And that was kind of like his, it was almost like a brighter interpretation of what he looked like. Um, and that really helped DC Comics in general and Detective Comics because the sales were sinking. They were being, they were really low. Like the Batman and Detective Comics weren't selling as well. And so they wanted to try to change the characters in the comics to try to bring in the audience, a new audience and the audience back that they had before. And then, like I said earlier at this time, now artists were giving credit for their work. And so you knew that Carmine Infantino drew this new look. It wasn't just Bob Kane. And so that was really important. And then a few years later, um, in 1966, the Batman live action television series began with Adam West and Burt Ward as Batman and Robin. And that was a huge success. Even in the first season, it, it spun off a motion picture and Batmania began and everyone loved it. And so by the time that the third season was coming around, um, Julia Schwartz, who was the DC editor at the time, it wasn't Ben Sullivan anymore, he wanted to attract a different audience because during the time the, it was, the female empowerment movement was happening and they weren't seeing any strong superhero women in the comics. And so that's when uh, Carmine Infantino, he created... Um, Batgirl, who was Barbara Gordon, and her first appearance came before she debuted on the live-action series in Detective Comics number 359 from January of 1967. Um, she pretty much was Barbara Gordon, who was Commissioner James Gordon's daughter, and she admired Batman and all that he did for the city, and then one night she dresses up in her homemade costume as Batgirl, and she goes to a society party that Bruce Wayne was originally at, but then um, Killer Moth, the villain, was actually there and, you know, trying to steal the money of all the rich people and everything. So Batgirl came in and helped Batman and saved the day. And even in that issue, Batman's like, you know, this isn't a place for a woman to be. But then she's like, I don't care. This is what I love to do. You know, and it kind of fit into that female empowerment, that kind of girl power that anyone could be a superhero type of feel. And her character made the sales go up and really, you know, helped with 
the Batman and Robin stories, and she was just a new addition to the Batman family that a lot of female, you know, that the female audience grew from that. And, I mean, so Carmine Infantino is really important for the new look, and I'm sure everyone has seen the iconic poster where Batman and Robin are kind of standing on the roof, or, you know, ready to leap off, and that's been, you know, redone by new creators all the time. And, yeah, he pretty much helped Batman get out of the rut of, you know, lack of uh, comic sales and introduce new characters to the Batman family. Well, then I have to thank him because my first crush was on Batgirl. <laughs> Batgirl's awesome. She is definitely one of my favorites, especially Barbara Gordon. I love her as a character. She's one of my favorites, yeah. definitely. Just that, <laughs> just that red hair. I had a always a keen eye towards <laughs> Maybe because I have red hair, but <laughs> I always that was my first crush as a little no, kid. No, Batgirl was definitely hot. Not gonna lie. Now, it's, <laughs> it, there you go. And it's actually interesting. I mean, that you know what Batman sixty six it's called, right? Right. They've reproduced that. I know, and I love that series. So tell me a little bit about that because I mean that is essentially paying all kinds of tribute to what, what Infantino did, right? Right, exactly. And especially if you watch the Batman 66 series, the live action, you will love the series. Mike Allred's work, you know, is perfect. It, and they pretty much recall different episodes and bring back, you know, villains that you didn't really see in comics like Ed, Egghead and one of my favorites, King Tut, since I love Egyptology. He was always one of my favorites. But yeah, definitely it brings back the... Batmania that everyone experienced in the late uh, 60s and put it into comics. And I'm, it bums me out that it took so long for it to kind of get there with all of like the licensing and all that stuff. And now all of the Batman 66 merchandise from the Blu-rays to the Hot Wheels to all of the, the collectibles. figures, right? Right. All of that is now available, you know. It, but yeah, the 66 series is really good, and I recommend anyone who loves the live action. So I, I want to get into that now. So where are they at with 66, the comics? Well, it first started as a digital first on DC, on the DC app. So they are a lot of issues, and I want to say, what, 30? So okay. if you want to just start on the first one, um, you can either, I'm sure... Meltdown might actually have it, or, you know, I'm sure any uh, comic books might have it, but the best way that I know you'll be able to read the first issue is to go on the DC Comics app and just type in, you know, Batman 66, and they'll have it for a really low price since it's, you know, kind of old, you know, right. now considering. But yeah, so definitely recommend that, and that's all thanks to Infantino for sure. Wow, that is a huge contribution. Uh, we've got the 70s, the 80s. The nineties, the new the pre new fifty two, the new fifty two, right. and probably now convergence to yes. talk about. Uh, we're up at an hour right now. Okay. So what I think we'll do is we'll just call this part one. Part one, definitely. And then we'll come back next week, do part two. Does that sound fair? That sounds awesome. Okay, great. Definitely. So again, thank you so much. Uh, I mean. Learning about the creators, I think, is obviously very important. Um, at Meltdown, I think one of the big keys of the philosophy behind the store is to actually pay tribute to creators and give creators a voice. Uh, you know, we have Meltology, where people come and just draw. We have Zine Melt, where people get to sell their creations. And so I think it's, you know, you can't. Everyone obviously wants to get their foot in the door and do something and create and just have fun with this medium that is comic books. And I think by you focusing on Batman's creators, it's it's a very nice and important thing. So thank you for doing that. No problem. I think it'll help a lot of people who, like I said, really want to start getting into reading comics, especially Batman comics. And a lot of these issues are really key moments in his history and they may start reading it and they really like the way Carmen Infantino draws and they might want to read more. And I even have a, a collector's edition of all of his works. Um, it's under DC Comics and it says The Art of Carmen Infantino. And they have these for pretty much all of the creators for the most part that we've talked about in this first session. When we go to part two, it'll be the exact same. And so I'll definitely recommend some for people to check out. That's great. And so if people do want to reach out to you and get these 
uh, creation, or I'm sorry, these uh, collected editions or some recommendations, uh, how can people contact you? The easiest way to contact me is if you email me at historyofthebatman at gmail.com. And if you're a follower on the Instagram page, instagram.com slash historyofthebatman, just shoot me a direct message and I will definitely get back to you. I love all suggestions, whether you guys want to hear a particular topic or anything. You guys have any feedback, please let me know. So email me at historyofthebatman at gmail.com. Okay, and... Also, uh, every Wednesday, obviously, we're releasing or we're coming back and releasing new podcasts. So uh, please tune in every Wednesday. It's like new comic book day, except it's new podcast day for the history of the Batman. Exactly. Um, <laughs> all right. So we're going to talk about that next week and we'll hit the uh, the 70s to present. Um, thanks again for coming in. Thank you, Shadow Adam. Always a pleasure. Uh, this is the history of the Batman at Meltdown Comics uh, with London, brought to you by Meltdown Comics, Fat Collectibles, that's P-H-A-T, Collectibles. We've also got the digital comic book platform, Comics Fix, who are sponsoring as well, so thank you for that. Again, this is the history of the Batman with London at Meltdown Comics. This has been produced by an engineered, sorry, produced and engineered by Mason Booker, the Bane fan, and co-produced by me, Adam Silverstein. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>